all. Welcome, everybody, to The Christian Optimist. I am your host, Pastor Rafe Chenery. And man, oh man, today is the launch, episode number one of this show. Now, for those of you that are listening to this episode, you know that this has been a long time coming. We've been talking about launching this for way too long, and I am just pumped that we are actually here. It's launching The Christian Optimist. It's actually a thing. We got here. Um, Let me read you a quote, and as I've been thinking about what this show is going to be all about, I'm a pastor in downtown Chicago. For those of you that don't know me, that are tuning in and learning about this podcast, I'm a pastor uh, right near the epicenter of Chicago, Illinois. Uh, So right in the heart of a big city, I get to be upfront and personal with all types of issues that the world is facing right now, every type of cultural issue. If you're seeing on the news, we're living it out here in Chicago. And I'm reading this quote from Calvin, John Calvin, so one of the great reformers from back a long time ago. And in book four of Institutes, his big kind of systematic theology of sorts, he writes this. Now, this is Calvin describing the work pastors ought to get after. He says, here then is the sovereign power with which the pastors of the church, by whatever name they be called, ought to be endowed. Ready? Here it is. That is, that they may dare boldly to do all things by God's word may compel all worldly power, glory, wisdom, and exaltation to yield to and obey his majesty. Supported by his power, may command from all from the highest even to the last, may build up Christ's household and cast down Satan's, may feed the sheep and drive away the wolves, may instruct and exhort the teachable, may accuse, rebuke, and subdue the rebellious and stubborn, may bind and loose, finally, if need be, may launch thunderbolts and lightnings, but do all things in God's word. Now that's a little John Calvin for you, but I think that gets to the heart of what I try to do in my pastorate and what some of the purpose of what we're doing on this podcast is. My aim is to create more and more touch points with our church and with other Christians to equip and to help Christians process and think through the actual real world that we're living in. The reality is, is that the Bible ought to saturate our entire worldview. I like to say it's like the Bible is like our glasses. It's like wearing a a lens in front of your eyes. And when you see all of the world through that lens, you have an actual view of reality. You're able to see reality as it truly is, not as kind of we're deceived oftentimes into thinking. So on this show, there's a whole bunch of stuff I want to get done. I want to have touch points with our folks to open the Bible again throughout the week and look at God's word. I want to look at culture and worldview and I want to look at news articles. And every time I want to bring us back to the word of God and I want to say, how do we as followers of Christ interpret the world that we're experiencing, interpret the news that we're seeing, interpret all the craziness of our times through the word of God and let the Bible form the actual way we think But more importantly than that, let the Bible form the way we worship. See, that's my ultimate aim. My ultimate aim in studying the word of God is that my heart would be stirred up to greater worship. My ultimate aim in doing apologetics and doing evangelism and and doing Bible study and, and interpreting worldview, all of that is always to stir the heart to greater worship. To know what Jesus Christ has done, to look at his sacrifice on the cross, and to build up inside God's church a heart of profound worship. And so that's the aim of this show. You're going to have me as your host every week. From time to time, I'll be bringing on different folks to interview, to talk about any number of different issues. But uh, here's what we're going to do. Two parts of the show. 
in this first part today, what I want to look at is why in the world did I call this show The Christian Optimist? What's the title all about? What am I getting after with that? And then in part two, we're going to have a little fun. We're going to look at a news article I came across recently and kind of interpret it and do some of that basic worldview analysis. So part one, the purpose of this show and the title of the show. Where did I get The Christian Optimist from? Well, let's just start with the obvious. You're going to learn something about me. Uh, If you don't know me, if you're going to know me through this podcast, you're going to learn something about me, that I am the everlasting optimist, all right? People say this about me all the time. I'm kind of the guy where when you're down and out and it feels like you're losing and it feels like you're back against the wall, I'm the guy that's usually like, oh, come on, guys, we can win. We we can get through this. Like, we just got to work. We got to get together. I'm kind of the motivator guy. And I know that about myself. In fact, I had a phrase when I was a kid when we would play board games. And when I was like, we'd be playing Monopoly and I'd be down by like, you know, I had mortgaged everything. I had nothing left. And I used to say, and this is even when I was a little kid, I used to say, you know what? When you're losing, you're really winning. And it was this phrase I had that used to define what it was like to be down, that you could always get through it. Now, here's the thing. I actually am a big optimist. That's kind of one of my, just part of my personality naturally. But is that the reason I started the show? And is that the reason for the title? Is it just kind of a a description of who I am? The answer is actually no, it's not. It's not because I'm just an optimist. It's actually something deeper than that. Now you may be, you may be listening to this and you might be saying, you know what? I know why, why he called it the Christian optimist. It's because he's looking out at the world and we certainly are living in amazing times where there's so much to be optimistic about. I mean, I'm just looking out over the news. What is it? We're we're towards the end of September 2020 right now and looking out over the news and you got it. I mean, things are going amazing right now in the world. And if you thought that, I know why you would have thought that, but you would be wrong. You would be absolutely wrong. That's not why I called the Christian optimist. Now, if you didn't pick the humor up there, uh, this is a podcast. Sometimes humor is best seen through facial expressions. And so I understand why you wouldn't be able to pick up on that humor there. However, uh, the world is not going swimmingly right now. There are a number of issues and major hurdles that we are facing as a country, as a city in Chicago. We got a ton of stuff that we're going through right now. But as a country, man, we got any number of issues we could be talking about. And things seem, they seem for the moment as if they're difficult. And so the show's title is not Christian Optimist because I think today, on this day, things are going great and uh, we have a lot to look be optimistic about today. The reason for the title of the show is actually rooted in my theology. I come from the Reformed tradition. So when you hear me as a pastor preach on Sundays and when you'll hear me teach throughout the week, whether it's a podcast or teaching, is I teach Reformed theology. I trace my roots right back down to the Reformers, particularly through John Calvin and the work that the Reformers really did to bring us back to the Word of God, understand God's sovereignty in our place in God's unfolding of human history through God's sovereignty. Now, as a Reformed thinker, as a Reformed pastor, I have a particular view of the world that is rooted in what the Bible teaches about where we're headed. And the word for that, there's a big fancy theological term for it. It's called eschatology. My eschatology, the study of end times, of where things are ultimately headed. What's the ultimate destination of where this is going? Now, with humility, I want to tell you, before I even share this, I know that right out of the gate, episode one, we're going to get into some hard theology here, but that's good. I think Christians need to be stretched in what they know about God's word. When it comes to eschatology, my first preface before I even jump into mine is just to say, man, oh man, 
we need to have amazing humility as Christians whenever we talk about eschatology. And the reason for that is because there are great Christians who are smart, who are really looking at the Word of God, trying to interpret this well, and who come to different places on this topic. The Bible is, I think it's fairly clear on this issue, but there's some wiggle room, right? I I could ultimately be wrong on this, and someone who holds to a slightly different camp could be totally right on this. And so we hold this with humility, but also I teach it with conviction. I really believe that God has been fairly clear with us on these topics. Now, when I say Christian optimist, it's because my eschatology is rooted in what I like to call an optimistic amillennial view, amillennialism. Now, what, what do I mean by amillennialism? And oftentimes, just so you know, optimistic amillennialism is oftentimes called postmillennialism. So if you've heard of postmillennialism, uh, at least a version of postmillennialism, that's normally the camp I fall into, optimistic amillennialism or postmillennialism. What do I mean by millennialism? Well, in the book of Revelation, there's a verse that talks about a millennium that is to come, a millennium, a thousand-year reign of Christ. And there's a a few ways to interpret that. If you hold to what's called the premillennial view, you see that thousand-year reign is something that's going to happen in the future. It's a future place. It's a future thing. The millennium is yet to come. And and things in this earth's history are basically going to continue to get worse and worse and worse until Jesus returns and establishes his thousand-year reign. That's one way to view the world. I see things differently. Through an optimistic amillennial view, I see the thousand-year reign as starting the moment Jesus resurrected from the grave. He initiated his kingdom through his life. That's what he said. The kingdom is here, right in front of you right now. And through his death, his defeat of Satan, his binding of Satan, and his resurrection, the giving of the Holy Spirit that came at Pentecost, the kingdom has been established. And the thousand years that's talked about in Revelation is not a literal thousand years, but rather it's a symbolic number to talk about the church age, to talk about the age we're in where the Holy Spirit has come and God's church has been established and it's growing and it's growing right now. Now, if you say I shouldn't be taking things symbolically out of Revelation, I'd say, well, that's just not consistent because in Revelation, the whole thing is symbolic, right? Everything is meant to be interpreted symbolically. It's all pointing us to a deeper truth. When you talk about the beast out of the sea in Revelation, right? Most people don't think there's actually a monster that rises out of the Mediterranean Sea. Most people interpret the beast out of the sea as something slightly different. It's a metaphor for something, and they have their understanding of it. When we talk about the number 666, right? Most folks don't think it's an actual number, but say, wait, that means something. There's a reference there to something else. And I'd say the same thing with a thousand year reign. We're in the millennial kingdom now, and I'm optimistic about it because when I look at scripture, I see that God has said in this season we're in, the church age, so from Christ's death and resurrection all the way through to what where we are now, and until Christ returns, there is going to be a progressive growth of Christ's kingdom. It was established by Jesus. And what we've seen, not only in the word of God, but throughout history, is that it's progressively growing. Let me read you a few verses. Psalm 72, verses 8 and 9. May he have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Well, we're talking about nations. We're talking about kings. What we're talking about is our earthly history. And and the psalmist foresaw this day where Christ would have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. 
It's this vision that we're progressively going to get to a place where Christ's kingdom grows and grows and overtakes secular culture. It overtakes worldly culture. It overtakes satanic culture. And Jesus truly wins. And at some point in that progress, in the growth of Christian history, Christ will return and he'll consummate all things. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above all the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. All right, so is he talking about a real mountain? I mean, if you take it extremely literally, maybe he could be talking about a mountain. What I think he's talking is I think he's talking about Jesus and his kingdom. So Jesus' kingdom, his church, Christ as the head of his church will be established and will be lifted up and all the nations will flow to it. And then many peoples will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. See, I think that's talking about our day. I think what he's saying in Isaiah chapter 2, a critical passage, is that the nations around the globe will increasingly, gradually, slowly, and at times it will look like it's going the opposite direction. But overall, the nations will be Christianized as Christ and Christians take over all aspects of society, institutions from academia to legal to political to you name it. Christ's kingdom will grow and Christianity will grow. And as Christ's kingdom will grow, nations will bow down. Whole nations will come to faith in Christ. Verse 4 of that same chapter, He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many folks. They will beat their swords into plowshares into their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. Neither will they learn more anymore. See, we're talking about nations, right? There, we can't be talking about heaven, the final heaven, when Christ returns. I don't think there's going to be nations and, and kings in that sense when we get to the final heaven. I think he's talking about the progressive growth of Christianity where entire nations will come to faith. And when nations come to faith, when the majority of an entire people group come to faith in Christ and overtakes the political system, what will ultimately happen is peace will grow. Rather than desiring to go to war with each other, Christian virtues of love and, and charity and, and turning the other cheek will work to such a way that nation will not go to war with nation anymore, but they'll beat their, their swords into plowshares. See, this is a very optimistic view of where we're going. Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that on every day it's going to look like that. Certainly, the Bible is full of the reality that we're going to experience persecution and suffering. And when you look throughout history, it doesn't mean that we have to be giddy about life all the time, right? You look at the great men. I think of men like Martin Luther and Charles Spurgeon. And if you read their works, and these guys struggled with the reality of depression. They struggled with just the hardships they were going through. And the Christian life is full of struggling. So saying the Christian optimist is not to have this like kind of giddy, happy-go-lucky, you know, you got your feet over the fire and you're just like, woohoo, it's going to be great. Let's go forward. No, we're, we're realistic as Christians, realistic, but we're realistic because we have the actual lens of scripture to shape what we think about where we are and what we think about where we're going. We suffer and we struggle and we are persecuted for our faith. And in this country, I will say at times it feels like we're hanging on by a thread. But the larger picture, where we know it's going, if not in my life, in future generations, is that it will increasingly grow. And we should expect that the work we do, the work you do, your Christian love, your Christian faith being lived out, 
has actual real world implications in the progressive growth of God's kingdom on this earth, which means that your life has deep significance. The work you put in to see Christianity grow around you, sharing your love with your neighbors, serving, fighting for real justice. What that means is that those things matter. You are building God's progressive kingdom. Now, that should make you optimistic. Even on days where it looks like we're hanging on by a thread, and I will tell you, and you will hear that from me regularly, it feels like we're hanging on by a thread in this country especially, we have a future optimistic view on the world because of what Christ's word has taught us about where we're headed with all things. So that's the basis of the show. That's why you get the title. What we're going to talk about in this show is a whole lot of stuff. We're going to look at worldview, and we're always going to come at it from this lens of how do we work to establish Christ's kingdom Uh, not just to establish it, but to be part of the progressive outgrowth of it all around us. All right, that's part one of the show. Please stay tuned. Come back for part two in just a moment. All right, at our break here, I want to plug just a couple things. One, I want you to know, not only do I have this podcast that I'll be putting out weekly, Lord willing, uh, but I also keep a blog. And so I'm going to encourage you, check out my blog. It's rafechenery.com. That's R-A-E-F-C-H-E-N-E-R-Y.com. On there, you're going to find a ton of stuff. So I I write regularly. I talk on topics, everything. So when you talk about cultural topics, uh, what is the gospel? Talk about abortion. I just wrote a piece on abortion just a couple weeks ago. uh, Talking about critical race theory, how that interacts with the gospel, what we're talking about when we're talking about those things. Check out the blog. I'm trying to put resources out there to equip the church. And if you are in Chicago and you are looking for a church, I just want to let you know we are located in the South Loop of Chicago. I'm a pastor at Park Community Church, but we also have locations all around the entire city, many locations across the city. And so I just want to encourage you, if you're looking for a church, check out the website parkcommunity.church. You can find our South Loop location through there or any of our other locations across the city. And I just want to encourage you, if you're not part of a church, you need to be a part of a church. You need to be plugged in using your gifts to bless a local church. God's word drives you to do that. You've been given spiritual gifts that are to be used within the context of a local church. And so don't rob uh, other Christians of your gifts by not being plugged in deeply into a family of Christ through a local church. So get plugged in, look us up, and uh, stay tuned. Welcome back. We are going to kick off part two. And in this segment, what I want to do is I want to look at a fascinating article uh, that I came across in the Wall Street Journal the other day. Now, the title of this article, let me pull it up here. The title of this article is is this, a viral video asks a deep question. Here's the subtitle. How do we know that math is real? And who came up with it in the first place? Now, this Wall Street Journal article is referencing a teenage girl who created a TikTok video asking the question of how do we know if math is real? Now, I'm going to play you a segment of this video right now. So here's this teenage girl asking a very deep question. How do we know the math is real? It's a bit humorous. So here you go. Listen. I was just doing my makeup for work, and I just wanted to tell you guys about how I don't think math is real. And I know that, like, it's real because we all, like, learn it in school or whatever, but who came up with this concept? And you're like, Pythagoras, but how? How did he come up with this? He was living in, like, the, I don't know, whenever he was living, but it was not now where you can, like, have technology and stuff, you know? So before I go on, just know as she's filming this, she's looking in the camera, putting her makeup on. So this is a a teenage girl putting her makeup on, getting ready in the morning, having this deep philosophical thought about math. All right, keep going. So if you hear noises in the background, that's her dropping her makeup. Like he didn't even have plumbing. 
and he was like, let me worry about Y equals MX plus B, which first of all, how would you even figure that out? How would you like start on the concept of algebra? Like, what did you need it for? You know, cause like I get like addition, like, Hey, if I take two apples and then add three, it's five, you know, but how would you come up with the concept of like algebra? All right. So the video goes just a little bit longer than that. It's a pretty funny video, actually, just seeing this this teenage mind thinking through this deep question. But here's the thing. The Wall Street Journal picked up on it. Now, when the journal picks up on something, it gets a little bit of a larger viewership and uh, it begins to get some different minds working through it. And let me read to you just a little bit about this. So they begin to try to answer the question that this girl's posing. How do we know the math works? I mean, think about it for a second. The girl poses this great question. Really, she's asking, how did people figure it out? That's one question. But underneath her question is another question. How do we know it's true? And what are the pieces of the conversation we need to have in order to know that math is true? I mean, do we just blindly assume that math is true? Therefore, math is true. Well, how do you know it's true? Well, we just do. And what are the philosophical principles to help guide that conversation? Here's from the journal. Mathematics is based on logic, not evidence. Take the equation y equals mx plus b, which Gracie, that's the YouTube video you heard, mentions as a perplexing example. You might remember this from math class as the equation for a straight line. Then it goes on. If math were based on evidence, then to test the validity of the equation, we'd graph a large quantity of straight lines, and if they could all be described as y equals mx plus b, we would be, be satisfied. In reality, students learning algebra don't approach the equation that way. Some people in math class might try graphing a few lines and concludes that it works. Others might simply look at the equation intuitively and think it's right. Math does rely on intuition, but for something to count as math, that feeling of rightness has to be made into a logical argument. The first problem here is to say what a straight line is in the first place in a form precise enough to use logical arguments. All right, let's pause there for just a moment. The journal basically is trying to answer this question by laying a foundation for what math is and what math isn't. And they're trying to make an argument on use the use of logic. Now, this is a really important thing for the Christian worldview. Logic and rationality are some of those um, principles of the world that we live in that the atheistic worldview cannot account for. I want you, I want you to hear that again. Logic and rationality, and I would argue a third one in there to account for would be morality, are principles that we live by, that we know are true, that the Christian worldview can provide uh, rationality for, can provide reasoning and foundation for, but the atheistic worldview cannot. So let me give you, let me, let me try to explain this to you. Out of an atheistic worldview, there is nothing beyond the material universe that we live in, right? Materialism, the philosophy of materialism says that basically the only thing that exists, the only thing that is real is that which we can actually physically touch. We can physically see that there aren't, there's not an invisible spiritual world. Things like uh, miracles do not exist. The only thing that happens that is, is that which we can touch, which we can test, which we can actually have our hands on. It's materialistic. There are no invisible realities that don't have a founding in the material world. Now, here's where that worldview completely falls apart. And that is the basis of the modern atheistic worldview is materialism. The reason that falls apart is because there are certain things that we know to be true that are universal truths, unchanging universal truths that are not material in nature or in essence. Logic and rationality 
is one of those principles. Morality is another one of them. But let's just stick with logic and, and rationality. Logic is what composes mathematics. Mathematics is based on logic, logical statements and logical arguments. That's what the journal is trying to explain mathematics is. What is logic? You can't touch it. You, you can't feel it. It doesn't exist in any um, material space as a founded entity. It's not like a house that you can touch. It's not an energy in any way. It's, it's non-material, yet it's fundamentally true and universal. Now, according to the materialistic worldview, that should not be the case. There is no such thing as things which are non-material, they're immaterial, yet universally consistent and true and perfectly true. Now, the problem is, is that everyone knows logic is that way. We expect the world to work and operate in this world as if logic is true. We expect that one plus one is always going to equal two. Now, when pushed on a debate, there was a great debate that took place a while ago, a number of years ago now. And it was a debate uh, in which Dr. Greg Bonson, and Greg Bonson, for those of you who don't know, you're going to hear me bring this man up a lot. He is one of my heroes, one of the great... Uh, presuppositional debaters of the Christian faith. I mean, this guy, he's just the boss. So if everyone wants to read some good Christian writing or or look at some good teaching online, look up Dr. Greg Bonson, B-A-H-N-S-E-N. And he debated a guy named Gordon Stein. And Gordon Stein was coming at it from the material worldview. Greg Bonson, obviously coming from the Christian worldview. And I want you to listen to this exchange. All right. And I'll jump in at different points. So here's the same conversation being debated, an atheist versus a Christian debating the laws of logic. Here we go. Now, this voice that you're hearing is Dr. Greg Bonson, the Christian worldview. All right. So listen to him closely. Logical minds and logical self-contradictions in your speech. You did say that. I said it. I used that phrase. Yes. Do you believe there are laws of logic then? Absolutely. Are they universal? They're agreed upon by human beings. They aren't laws that exist out in nature. They are. Are they simply conditions then? Now, notice what's happening here. Dr. Greg Bonson is asking the atheist. He's saying, do you believe these laws of logic are universal? And the atheist is backed into a corner at this point, and he begins to, to, to try to find sure footing for himself. And so he says, wait a second, they're conventions. Laws are not laws, rather they're conventions. What he means by that is they're man-made, they're created ways of organizing the world. Okay, so keep listening. I'm going to back up just a bit so you can catch up on that. Uh, nature. They are. are they simply conventions then? They are conventions, but they are conventions that are self-verifying. Are they sociological laws or laws of thought? They are laws of thought which are interpreted by men and promulgated by men. Are they material in nature? How can a law be material? That's the question I'm going to ask you. <laughs> You can hear the crowd laughing in this video because they're realizing, everyone's realizing the atheist is in a corner. He's got nowhere to go right now. Greg Bonson is debating him and this guy's got nowhere to go. I would say no. All right, so now they're going to switch and Dr. Stein's going to interview. He's going to ask a few questions to Dr. Bonson. Cross-examination. Dr. Bonson, uh, would you call God material or immaterial? Immaterial. What is something that's immaterial? Something not extended in space. Can you give me an example of anything other than God that's immaterial? Lost logic. 
and you could just hear the crowd erupt at that point. Can you give me an example of anything else? Laws of logic. Here's the point. Now, in this debate, Dr. Greg Bonson just tears Dr. Stein apart. Bonson goes on. He says something like this to wrap up his point. He says the atheistic worldview cannot account for this debate tonight because this debate tonight has assumed that we are going to be using the laws of logic as standards of reasoning or else we are irrational. We're going to use the laws of science. We're going to assume induction and causation. And then what he says is he says the atheistic worldview does not give rise to all of those elements. The Christian worldview does, and it's consistent. So if you want to live in a world where laws of logic are not just conventions, keep in mind, if it's a convention, if we settle and we say, no, you know what? The laws of logic are just conventions made up by man. Then I can make up my own laws of logic on any time I want. If I want one plus one to equal three instead of two, I can because it's simply a convention. If on the, if on the other side of the ocean, they come up with an entirely different convention that completely contradicts our conventions of mathematics and laws and logic and rationality. Nobody can say they're wrong because at the end of the day, they're just conventions according to the atheistic worldview, but not according to the Christian worldview. You see, the Christian worldview is rooted in God, in the, the triune God of scripture. And the triune God of scripture has created a world of both material and immaterial realities that are true. Logic, rationality, morality, and the list could go on of immaterial yet universal truths that are held constant because the God of order who is over all of them holds them constant. If you remove that God, then you don't have the base to form the constancy we need to have something like logic and rationality. Another one of my heroes uh, actually, Greg Bonson would uh, talk often about Cornelius Van Til. Listen to how Cornelius Van Til talks about this. Now, I'm going to read a little bit from a book here called The Defense of the Faith by Van Til. Van Til really came up with a lot of this way of thinking about the Christian faith. He says, it is therefore a contradiction in terms to speak of presenting certain facts to men unless one presents them as parts of this system, this system being the Christian worldview. The very factness of any individual fact of history is precisely what it is because God is what he is. Hear that again. The very factness of any individual fact of history is precisely what it is because God is what he is. It is God's counsel that is the principle of individuation for the Christian man. God makes the facts to be what they are. Now, what is Van Til saying? He is saying, if we want to understand the meaning of facts, if we want to understand what they actually mean and put them together in a meaningful way and apply meaning to the arrangement of facts, we have to start from the Christian worldview, from a God who placed us, has placed us for a purpose, and has given meaning to every fact of the universe. And the whole point of the chapter of Van Til is saying, if you remove God and you begin to try to look at facts, whatever you think a fact might be without God, and try to give meaning to them, you will always fall short unless you gather the meaning from the God of Scripture, because he is the ultimate sovereign God over every fact of the universe. If we want to know the purpose of the rocks and the purpose of the, 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 the different layers of the stratosphere, if we want to know the purpose of any fact you could ever look up in all of science, in all the world, we have to filter it through the lens of Scripture and know what the Scriptures say. 
And then we find the meaning for those facts from the God of Scripture. Think of Proverbs 9.10, great proverb. And we actually, this proverb is, you know, has multiple versions of it. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. If you want to know reality as it actually is, you must go through the God who created reality and applied meaning to it. If you don't go through that reality, then all you are seeing is what some kind of convention, which is false. God is the one who defines what is true. And so let me bring this full circle. Let me go back to the original article I brought up, why we got into this conversation. The TikTok video from this teenage girl is asking an important question. How do we know math is real? Well, from an atheistic worldview, you can't. There is no real answer to this. It's fascinating going through the Wall Street Journal article. If you look at a number of the, um, the, the comments that are made on this, if you look at the way people are thinking through it, they're just not thinking about why math is true. Here's some of these comments. Bill Glasgow writes, beings in other galaxies have the same math truths that we do. Math is universal. Now, I'm not going to comment on beings in other galaxies and whether or not they're aliens. That'll be another podcast for another day. But his comment is that math is universal. In other words, it's not a convention. And to that commenter, I would say, if you believe that, you cannot come from an atheistic worldview. Because as we've already seen in that debate I aired just a little bit ago, if you are an atheist, the best you can say is that logic and math are simply conventions. They are not universal truths. Um, let's go back down this a little bit further. One, one writer says this, I'm really hoping engineer of most anything has replied to this nonsensical question. Kind of hard to build anything without at least some kind of math. Now to that comment, I would say you are right. This is a nonsensical question. Unless, unless you start with the Christian worldview, then it totally makes sense. Then we get math. Then we get logic. Then we get rationality. If you are an atheist, it's absolute nonsense to even have conversations about rationality and mathematics. What are they? They're conventions. They're nothing more than just random particles floating with no meaning through a random universe. That's it. You can't apply meaning to any of it. It's the Christian worldview which gives you meaning. If you want to have a great sense of worldview, one of the things you can do is go through the comments in articles like these. You go through the comment section, you begin to look at them and you see what are regular people who aren't writing these articles thinking about this topic. And you can begin to poke holes and say, oh, they haven't thought through it. They haven't thought through it. One more comment that says, this is not deep. It is literally asking how we know an observable axiom exists. Well, actually it is deep. It's deep because what it's asking the question of is why does it work? And it works because God is who he said he is. And he created the world to be knowable. He created the world to be uh, cultivated by mankind. We remember back in Genesis 1, that great cultural commissioning that God gave Adam and Eve to be like God, to create and to cultivate the earth around them and to, to do this in an order that was going forward and progressing. Now, that's the talk for today. Man, oh man, this is this is already fun for me. I'm telling you, we're getting into Dr. Greg Bonson Van Til on the first episode. We're going to have some fun on this show. I hope and pray this has been a blessing to you. Come back. I'm going to be dropping new episodes every week. We'll be looking at different topics, different articles, different videos from across the internet, and we'll be looking at them through a Christian world. You remember, my aim is to form worship in you. When you learn more, when you think more rightly about these things, I want it to stir you to worship of Jesus Christ and what he's done for you on the cross, who he is in all his glory. All right, tune in next week. I'm excited to see you back then. 